when a professional illustrator watches another illustrator do something, if they watch them for five minutes, they'll say, why are you doing that? There's a better way to do that. Right. And the more of those conversations you can have with your peers, the more you're going to learn. Welcome back to the Medical Illustration Podcast. This is your host, Paul Kelly. I've been studying martial arts for many years now, so it's second nature for me to use martial arts analogies when I talk about my other disciplines. I don't think anyone who's active in the field would deny that my guest on this episode is a certified black belt in medical illustration. Andrew Swift is well known throughout the profession as a prolific medical illustrator. After graduating from the Georgia program in 1999, he went on to be an associate professor there for the next decade and helped to train a generation of highly skilled medical illustrators. He's been an active member of the Association of Medical Illustrators and presents regularly at the annual meetings. As the director of medical science at ISOFORM, he's been actively working on a multitude of illustration and animation projects and has completed thousands of illustrations, many using a combination of techniques which we discuss. Andrew is well-grounded in traditional art techniques and continues to draw almost every day. He's worked extensively in ZBrush and corresponds regularly with their development team, helping that software provide the tools that medical illustrators need for the types of projects we do. With his teaching and industry experience and activity in the AMI, he's one of the best people to point out some of the big names in the industry, and he's not shy about name dropping in this episode, so get out a pen and paper. As always, I'll provide show notes on my personal website, so check those out if you'd like to learn more about some of the topics we cover. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Andrew Swift. This is definitely an interview I've been looking forward to for a while. I've been a huge fan of your work throughout my whole career. And when I first started looking at grad programs, first started looking at professional work, yours was work that I gravitated towards. I'm like, this is where I want to be. You know, this is this is the level I want to get to. But I haven't I haven't seen uh, your portfolio up. I think your site uh, has moved or is no longer there. I, is- it's defunct. I I turned it off. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I still have the domain, but we, all my work is done through Isoform now. The only work okay. that I do through Swift illustration is reuse. And that's, that's tapered down to where some years is nothing, you know, there are a couple of pieces that still get reused. Um, and okay. you know, most of those clients don't, I don't work for them anymore. So the, the scientist magazine hires me occasionally, but very rarely. And I haven't done a piece for scientific American in a long time. So, okay. So Isoform is the best place then to see, uh, see the work you've been doing. It is. And I need to put my Swift illustration work either on that site or on a site and have it point to Isoform. Got to do that. Okay. Okay. So yeah, tell us a little bit about your history and background before you even got into the field. I mean, how much experience did you have in art before you, uh, even started your professional training? So I had, I had a good high school art teacher <laughs> and my, and I, I always had a little ability to draw and my mother is the one who figured it out when I was a little kid because she knew about medical illustration because the man who ran the Georgia program, it was, it was uh, the medical college of Georgia back then that ran, that was the director of the graduate program was a man named Bill Stenstrom. And he's a fabulous uh, illustrator, wonderful guy. He's passed. Um, but Bill was my, drove my carpool. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. He drove my carpool as a kid and I was friends with his daughter. And uh, my mother figured it out when I was about eight, nine, nine or 10 years old. And she took me to the student center 
they were having an exhibit. And I remember seeing this drawing, I still remember it. And it was a drawing of an eye. And there was, it, someone had gone through painstakingly airbrushed every vessel in the choroid plexus on the back of the eye. And I remember looking at it and thinking, I'll never, you know, I'm never gonna be able to do that. I gotta find something, I gotta be able to do something, something else. And little did I know that that's actually not the hard part. That's, you know, that's actually a pretty easy assignment. Somebody would give you, you know, a dissection of something and say, hey, just draw this. And that's what this was, make it lifelike and give it the right colors. That's actually a pretty easy assignment. And is I would love if my day-to-day -day was rendering images like that, specimen illustration. I almost, none of us ever get to do, <laughs> ever get to paid to do that really. Those days are over, yeah. So that's how I heard about it. And then I, uh, I did some, I did a, a special project in college on the catfish, which I still have somewhere. They're not bad illustrations actually, but I still didn't really know how to draw. And I went to the Peace Corps and on the first week of the Peace Corps in South America, I was in Ecuador, they, somebody said, would anyone here like to draw as an illustrator as part of their Peace Corps service? And I found myself raising my hand and she, there were a couple of us and he had us do drawings and bring them in the next day and submit them. I, and I, of course, copied a drawing out of an encyclopedia of a, I think it was a water buffalo or something. And he was like, oh my God, that's great. That's just incredible. And now I'm sure it was, a, you know, knowing what I know now, it was a terrible I'm sure it was a terrible drawing, you know, <laughs> super high key pencil, you know, very timid. Anyhow, so I worked as an illustrator in the Peace Corps for almost four years. I was there for about three and a half years. And I did work. I did a lot of work as an illustrator, even though I wasn't a very good artist. I got a lot of experience being assigned to non-governmental organizations and doing assignments for, for them. I did flip charts and t-shirts and book covers. I did training materials, how, how to plant, uh, how to work in a nursery, how to you know, germinate seeds and that sort of thing. Some of the drawings were pretty good. There was a fabulous illustrator from Peru who I later met a friend of his, what's his name? I can't think of it. If I find it, I'll give it to you. Maybe you can put it in the show notes. And he was hired by the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations as an illustrator, his work to this day is some of the best for what it was, really heavy, out, little beefy outlines, beautifully rendered faces of, of, of native people in South America, uh, indigenous people. So anyhow, I, I, I worked as an illustrator and got a lot of experience and I got it in another language. I was, you know, having meetings in Spanish, can't, my Spanish isn't that, that good anymore, but at the time it was a really good ex experience and it made me realize that I kind of knew that I wasn't a great artist, but the the pro getting a project and seeing a project through to completion is its own thing and separate from the quality of the art, even if it's a simple problem. Understanding the client's needs and and getting you know accepting their finding collating their feedback and producing the illustration is uh, is its own thing. Anyhow, I got a lot of experience with that. I came back from the Peace Corps and I was a little bit lost trying to figure out what I was gonna do. And the decision was medical school or medical illustration school. And uh, I picked medical illustration school and set up a preliminary interview with David Mascaro, who I'd never met. I went to meet with David and he was extremely generous to me considering that I showed up with copied drawings of his artwork <laughs> i didn't i didn't know any better you know i just didn't 
and he he didn't say you know this is you know this is this is terrible what you've done he didn't say that and what he did say to me was he got to the heart of the matter which was he said you know we'd love to have you. Uh, i published a couple of papers on ciguatera uh, food poisoning that comes from eating fish that have eaten this algae and stuff so yeah, I, I did that before i went to peace corps uh with my father we actually got a couple of papers published and so i had some science background i was a biology major uh and he said we'd love to have you but you need to go learn to draw he didn't say get better at drawing he said you need to learn to draw and i remember thinking well that's i, I mean i can draw it's anybody can draw i can draw and what he meant was you have to become facile you need to really be good uh, an excellent artist to do this and and i once i got over the shock of somebody telling me i needed to go learn to draw i said oh okay well how do i do that what do i do and he said there are a couple of schools he said and he gave me the list of them and the one that he recommended the most was to go to the art students league where he went and to study with the person that he knew when he was at the art students league a man named jack faragasso who was trained under, uh, he was one of Dean Cornwell's students and Dean Cornwell studied under, I think, um, is it Pyle? I can't remember exactly the lineage, but it goes all the way back to, um, was done, maybe it was done. I can't remember. So anyhow, I, I studied art locally at Augusta College and took some art history classes, drawing, sculpture, installation, stuff like that. Photography, had some really, had a really good photography teacher at Augusta State. It was Augusta College then, now it's Augusta University. Um, and so I got a year in Augusta and then I took, and I asked David, I said, how long, I said, okay, how long is it gonna take me to learn to draw? Like that's David's job to know how long it's gonna take me to learn to draw. And he said, he looked at me, he said one, and he kind of looked at me, he said, probably two years. So he, <laughs> he was, you know, and I'm like, God, two years seems like a long time, but it was absolutely the best advice. And I'm so glad that I took two years to, to do it. And so I did a year in Augusta and then I moved to New York and couch, basically couch surfed for a year. I had no money. I was completely broke. I just managed to do it. The Art Students League was not expensive. It still isn't. But living in New York was expensive. Uh, but I made it work. And I, all I did for that year in New York, all I did was draw it all I did was draw and paint for a nice. year and I'd go to museums and draw and I you know I was drawing on the subway and people don't believe it but I was really a pretty bad artist and so the that <laughs> by the by the time I got to New York I'd started to figure some of it out but I have drawn you know sketchbooks where the drawings are really bad they're wildly out of proportion figures and terrible decisions about line weight and everything's just a mess and you know, if you draw a person, their eyes are too big and their hand, you know, so it was pretty bad. But I went to New York for a year and really figured it out and had an excellent experience there. And I did study under Jack Faragasso uh, and he was a, an interesting fellow. And most of what you get is just doing it. It's not what the teachers teach you. It's just the doing of it over and over and over and over. And also exposure to other artists and exposure to great museums. And so if you're in New York, you get all that. Yeah. And then I, I was applying to the medical illustration schools. And again, I was broke, so I couldn't really afford to travel. So I only interviewed at Georgia. I didn't interview anywhere else. And I still have the letter from Gary Lees where he said, he, he was like, we'd like to have you come interview if you want, you know, and I, I in retrospect, I probably should have, I, you know, but 
I didn't. Wow. So that's wow, how I, man. that's how I got into the field. That's amazing. That's awesome. And then you were, uh, you were an instructor at uh, the Georgia program for several years. Now, did you work for a little while after you graduated or did you go straight into teaching? So I, when I graduated, I worked for the section of neurosurgery uh, and I was assigned to one surgeon there and I'd go to surgery with him and draw. And then I had a, a kind of off the books teaching appointment to some of my classmates as soon as I, or, you know, people who are a year behind me, but I really wasn't teaching very much. And it was, I was housed inside the medical illustration department. Steve Harrison got me a room knowing that I would teach a little bit and help out. And then it became more formal. And then finally, I don't really remember the timeline anymore. I think I did that job working as a neurosurgery illustrator for a year or two. And then maybe David retired or went part-time or something. A position came open and I applied for it and got it. And, you know, I was, I, I really enjoyed teaching. I knew I always wanted to teach. I taught environmental education for a year when I got out of college and I enjoyed that a lot. Uh, that was to grade school kids. So I always knew I wanted to teach and I knew it was a great opportunity. I also knew those opportunities didn't come along that often. So I decided to do it. In retrospect, I think it really would have been good for me to work in a studio and understand the field better before I started teaching because I was teaching, what am I teaching the students? You know, I didn't have, I had my experience working for one surgeon uh, in an institutional setting. That's pretty narrow. And I wish, I, I think my students would have been better served if I would have gone to EAI and worked there for a year or two um, before I started teaching, but the job came open and I applied for it and got it. And so that kind of, the decision was kind of made for me. Plus it was my hometown. I was from Augusta, so it, it made sense. I had a house oh, and okay. all that. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right on. Yeah, man. Anyone who's seen you present can definitely tell you're a natural at teaching. I mean, it really, <laughs> yeah, dude, you, you always, you always bring it. Thank you. Was it always a good fit for you? I always really liked teaching. And I was surprised when I left teaching how much I didn't miss it because I really do enjoy it. But we just got busy with the company and, you know, that kind of took up that space. I'm, I have an intern now and I'm teaching her and she is just a sponge and I can tell her to do something and I come back the next day and she has just done it. And I, I, I'm just so impressed with her ability, even under with pretty modest direction what she's able to do with that. And, and, it, and so I, I enjoy that. And I do teach at the meetings. The graduate programs would occasionally invite me to, to come speak. I love to do it. They're welcome to invite me. I'd love to come back. I go to Grenada and teach with Wes Price and his group down there. Some I started going when Jessica Holland was there and, uh, and then continue with Wes. And I've been down there probably eight or 10 times. So I've done, I, I get to do some teaching there. Mm -hmm. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Wes is a great guy, man. And they have a really great nice program guy. down there. Yeah. Got yeah. a lot of talent. So, yeah. So, so when you left to go work at Isoform, sorry, remind me again, when was that around 20? So we, we started, we started Isoform in, I think it was in 2009 okay. and Nick Klein had recently graduated from the program and he and I were close friends and we, he, he and I worked out at the same gym because he was on campus and I kept getting these jobs, which were a little too big for me to do by myself, or they, they had, you know, I didn't do, and I still don't do any interactive stuff or design or really, I, I'm really just an illustrator and a modeler. And I said, man, we should, you know, one of us said, we should start a company. 
And I'm like, no, I'm serious. We should start a company. So we, he's like, he's like, no, I'm serious. And that one, we did that for about three months. And finally it, it got to the point where we got one large job or I got one large job and I'm like, I can't do this by myself. And he said, well, if we're going to have a company, we need a programmer. He said, I've got a friend that I knew from, from EAI in Iowa. His name is Russ Adams. And I said, oh, okay. That's, you know, whoever. And we were in business for six months before Russ and I even met. <laughs> yeah. And, and now he's one of my close friends and I'm, he is such an incredible talent. He got a patent last year. He's just a great intellect and a, a wonderful guy. Yeah. So we're very, so the three of us started the company in 2009. Okay. Wow. And you were ahead of the curve then on remote working then, right? Or like a distributed team. Well, we started out, Nick and I were both in Augusta and Russ was oh, okay. in Iowa. Uh, and then Nick pretty quickly moved back to Iowa. Oh, okay. And yeah. And then I, I worked remotely from Augusta for the first nine years of the company. And it has, you know, so yeah, I understand the challenges of remote work better than, better than most. And what I found was that I, I didn't know what my, I, I, I worked a lot on a dairy farm as a kid. And they work a lot. I mean, they work tremendous hours. And I think I kind of model myself on that. I probably work a little too much in terms of hours per day. Uh, but I also take a lot of vacation. I take a lot of time off. But the th I guess the thing I do is I, when I'm working, I'm really working. And then I take, you know, I leave for a week or two and go do something fun. Yeah. Right on. And I wish, I, I, that's my recommendation to people. I'm like, don't come in late and then leave early. That's a waste of time. It is because, you know, yeah. Block out your days, work your butt off, and then and then leave. Collect all those hours you're not, you know, those little half hours here and there when you're sitting around, you know, sitting around the water cooler going to get coffee or something, and, you know, do something productive with it for yourself, not necessarily for work, but for yourself. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. So based on uh, the presentations I've seen you do, I mean, I can definitely tell that you've brought your your teaching skills into your professional work in the way you educate clients. And I think that's, that's definitely something that's really important. It's something I've been paying more attention to. So learning how to communicate your process and, and yep. teach clients how you work, you know, what, what other kinds of things would you maybe suggest that are, that are helpful for people to know about when they're preparing to get into the field? If you're going to get into the field, I always break it up into three things. It's of course, science. You got to have a love of science. You also have to have some background. You got to, you know, to really study a lot. You have to have the ability to draw. You got to have the art chops. And you have to have, now you have to have the digital thing. So it's science, art, and technology. That's what I tell people. And you really need a lot of all three. And you kind of need mm -hmm. a subspecialty in the technology piece. You've got to be, you got to be good at something, really good at something. And I think the, the main, my main beef with the graduate programs is that they're still teaching, they're teaching software uh, when they should really be teaching problem solving and not software. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. Does anyone think that learning how to find the arrow tool in Illustrator is a graduate level exercise? I don't think it is. Right. Yeah. You know, if you're if you're study if if you're in molecular biology, you're getting your master's degree. They don't teach you how to run the confocal microscope. They don't. They don't. You don't have a class in that. <laughs> you know, you just do it and you figure it out. And you probably go to one of your classmates or your or your PI and say, you know. How do I do this? And they'll give you the basics, but they're not going to sit there and test you on it. They're going to show you what you need to know. And I, I, I would love if the graduate programs were moved more towards 
here's the problem. You know, here is a set of tools you can use to solve the problem. Please use these tools to solve the problem and present your work. And I think it makes sense to have a checklist of some kind to say, you got to have an illustrator piece. You got to have a ZBrush piece. You got to have an animation piece. You got to have, you know, um, but I don't think that they should be teaching. I personally, I don't think they should be teaching Adobe Illustrator to graduate students. I think they should come in knowing that stuff. Mm -hmm. you know, or bring, bring in people who have the acumen that they can pick it up as they go. But I just think it's a waste of time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many great resources now available. I mean, to learn any tool you want. I mean, yep. I think all of us are, are constantly looking up tutorials and learning like a new, new trick and something that we're already using. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sam, I was listening to some of your other podcast interviews. I didn't know this podcast existed until you asked me to be on it. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. That's all right. I'll work. I'll work on the marketing part. They're excellent. They really are. And I, I, oh, I just, I just listened to the one. You're a very good interviewer, by the way. Um, oh, I just listened you. to the one uh, from Gail McGill and God, that guy, just what a tr tremendous talent that guy is. I'd love oh, to see absolutely. him start a, a graduate program specifically for molecular and cellular biology. You know, there's a whole career to be had for someone just doing that being you know, well-versed in that science of it. But I was listening to something that Sam Bond said, and um, what was it? I just had it a minute ago. I can't remember. Yeah, she. I mean, she's a professor at the UIC program, right? So I, I do try to touch base with folks from, you know, the different program lineages and then different areas of the field, you know, get a sense of like the different kinds of jobs people are going into, you know, and so that actually leads me to my next question, which is, you know, when you think back on past students who have gone on and to have successful careers in mm -hmm. the field, is there anything you can think of that all those students had in common? Um, a tremendous amount of drive. I mean, you look at, you know, Brandon Pletch, he produced his ear animation before any of the 3D classes were offered to him. So he did it his first year before he had animation or 3D, you know, wow. and, he's, and he had a tremendous amount of drive. I, I mean, I've had so many great students over the years. Uh, Thomas Brown comes to mind, Cameron Sladen, you know, Cameron worked for Science Magazine and I had referenced his illustrations before I met him to recruit him <laughs> to come to the program. <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. Wow. yeah. And, uh, you know, they were, they were unstoppable. You know, uh, there were a lot of students like that. I mean, Alyssa Eckert comes to mind as well. Michelle Davis is another one. You know, there these uh, Sarah Constantine. These are people who they almost didn't need the structure of a graduate program. They needed the classes and the science, and they needed the tasks to, you know, to to do problem solving. But you know, Cameron Cameron wouldn't do any of his work until the night before it was due, and it was invariably the best piece in the in the class. You know, he would never start on it because he didn't need to. He was busy doing other things, learning jujitsu and, you know, <laughs> working as an, you know, he had, a, he had a bunch of other interests. So I would say drive was the common thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah that, that, uh, that rings true for sure. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Now, when you think back on, you know, maybe things you might have wanted to do differently. I mean, you're still, you're in your, your prime of your career, but when you think about things, maybe made some mistakes along the way we all have, right? how did you come to resolve those? Are there things that uh, lessons you've learned you, you might want to share with younger folks? Yeah, I've made every mistake that can be made. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm not, it's not a joke. I really have. Some of them I continue to make. 
I think the biggest thing is the, the mistake that I continue to make over and over again are I'll assess a problem at a very superficial level and come to a conclusion. And if I just read through the email much more carefully and do just a little bit more research and then sit on it for a little bit, I'll realize that it's not exactly what it seemed at first. And if I were, if I respond to it immediately, I'm probably going to respond in the wrong way. You know? And the biggest thing with clients, because it kind of, it kind of goes with, you know, client, how you interact with clients, because now we interact with clients in a way, I don't know if everybody does this, but I produce work with clients live. I sculpt in front of clients in ZBrush. I draw for them. Uh, and I, I think that's hugely important. And I think it's hugely valuable to us as illustrators and to them as, you know, to come to a consensus on what something's supposed to look like. Because when you, when I meet with a client and let's say we don't draw or look at any images, we just talk about the project. When we leave that meeting, everyone leaves that meeting with a different vision of what that project is supposed to be. If I draw for them, if I make an image for them, even something that's very simple, even if it's just shapes that I put together in a Google Doc, it's a visual touchstone for all of us. It's one single image that we can carry with us to the next meeting. Even if we all deviate from that, we all, I make a different image and I'm going to show it to them in the next meeting and they think about different ways the images could evolve. It's all based on one image. And I'm, I don't make it by myself. I make it with their feedback. I'll say, do you want a figure? Yeah, we want a figure. Do you want a blood vessel over here? Yeah, I want a blood vessel. Over here. So I'll scribble something in. And when we leave that meeting, everybody's got that in their mind's eye. And it, it's hugely valuable. And now with ZBrush and uh, Google Docs and Photoshop and all these wonderful tools, and they really are amazing tools, we can push projects farther, faster than we ever could before, you know, if we just had a pencil and paper. Yeah, and I the project that I I think best encapsulates that is a spinal surgery piece that I showed a little bit at my talk at the AMI this year. This is from years ago. It's right when Dynamesh first came out. And it was a group of surgeons, fellows and residents and you know, two attendings, and they talked about this specific type of laminectomy. And I got a ballpoint pen drawing from someone that showed what the surgery was about. Absolutely unintelligible. So what I did was I built the section of the vertebral column that I knew that they were going to operate on or that the, that the surgery was about. And I prepared it and I, I prepped how to make the different cuts because I knew basically the tools that were done. They needed an osteotome, they had a rajour. And so I had little Boolean shapes ready to, ready to cut those things out. And we did the surgery in ZBrush in a screen share. And they would say, okay, angle it more. No, no, less than that. Move this over here. Yeah, that's it. That's the angle. Now go in five millimeters and take out that spot. The rongeur would go here, take this facet off, do this. And I could write on the bones in ZBrush and I could make the cuts and subtract these things out in ZBrush live. And what was really interesting was the surgeon said, well, no, not like that. That's not how we do it. And one of the other surgeons said, or his fellow actually said, yeah, it is. He said, we do that. <laughs> and he said, yeah, we do it that way. We angle it that way. And they were arguing about how the surgery was performed. Well, think about had that little interchange not happened, I would have built the model, built the illustrations, and way down the line, they would have had that argument. Yeah. But because I could do it for them live, they could see it and have that discussion right there. I also, uh, and so anyhow, I, I still have those models that have the drawings on them, first cut, second cut, third cut. 
of the whole thing prepared. From there, it's a pretty simple maneuver to go back, make those cuts on the actual models in sequence, high resolution, put all the detail in, all the cut bone and all that stuff. That's easy. The hard part was understanding the procedure. But that client communication that happens with them looking at your art and them having the aha moment. I remember that uh, when Cameron Sladen presented his thesis, his graduate thesis, Chris, uh, her, her name was Kristen, uh, I can't remember her last name. She was this fabulous researcher that worked on, uh, on neurons. And she made these transmission electron microscopy images. And Cameron had taken them and in flash put them together so you could scan through them and rotate the model, scan through these slices in a couple of different directions, maybe just one direction. And when he presented his thesis to us as his graduate, you know, as his faculty advisors, she was there and she saw her own research in his presentation and said, I never realized the mitochondria were clustered on one side of the axon. And that side was coordinated somehow with the number of dendrites who were either left fewer or more. I can't remember exactly what it was, but she saw her own research in a new way through Cameron's graduate presentation. And to me, that is, that's awesome. you know, that was one of those things that were, I, I thought to myself, you know, Cameron's graduate, th this is, this is a real graduate level experience. I'm very happy that I was part of this. Um, I'll give you another uh, example, Michelle Davis, I was teaching Osiris kind of off the books as kind of like a survey class. And I showed them the inner ear. I had a great model of the micro CT of the inner ear. And Michelle Davis walked by me about two months later and she was wearing the ossicles that she had had 3D printed in silver around her neck. Oh, nice. <laughs> and I didn't show her how to make a model. I just showed her the data and showed her Osiris and showed her these things. And she took the small amount of information I gave her and she had the drive and she investigated it further and kept doing, you know, she was like, I wonder if I could export the model. I wonder if I could get it, you know, 3D printed. And she did all that. And the next thing I knew, she was she was wearing it around her neck. You know, it was it was very impressive. That's cool. So yeah, I I missed those those um those those kind of wins from graduate school. I mean, that's why you teach. So those those sorts of things happen and you can be a part of it. So mm -hmm. that's awesome, man. That's awesome. Yeah, your pipeline, I love the way you use the Google Slides and you've, you've shared this before in presentations, how yeah. you know you can use that to update a storyboard or images for a, an illustration project. And then you can send notifications to the client so they'll know when you've updated this stuff. Yeah. So what are some of the other things that you've developed to get the best results in your projects? So let's talk about what, what I don't want. What I don't mm -hmm. want is a client emailing me saying, Hey, you know that illustration you just sent me? Can you take the second arrow that's third from the bottom on the left and move it a couple of, you know, don't do that. You know, yeah. find, you know, there has to be a better way to do that. And the better way to do that is to have that image in an online format where they can make the suggestion in a visual way when they need to, so that I know where it is, you know, how to, well, so I know how to fix it. Where do you want, you know, move this cell to here? All they have to do is drag an arrow and I'll move it. You know, I, I need crisp direction. If they say um, most of the problems with, with client communication and direction on illustrations that cause churn and churn is the term that I use for, we use in our company for kind of needless back and forth that doesn't really get us anywhere. It's just, it's really just noise in, 
if there's too much of it and I have certain clients where I know the best thing to do is to call them, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. I'll give them one or two free emails and then I'll say, let's set up a call and talk this through and I can make the changes for them live. And that's really important. I think the other process is that online format needs to be, needs to have some rules around it. One of my main rules is to make it efficient, to strive for it to be efficient for everyone. And part of that is clarity and communication. Uh, a comment in, in a shared document is not a place to muse about what might be. It's not a place to say, I wonder if we should, you know, move some of those arrows around. It should be, hey, Lisa, should I move this arrow? And she, having circled an arrow, she makes the comment. So when you roll over the comment, the arrow highlights, right? So it's mm -hmm. actionable. It's, it's mm -hmm. personalized. Hey, Lisa. And it's actionable. Should this arrow be moved? Mm. That kind of clarity, we should all strive for making it so that it's a single, it's a single contact where the comment is made and I know exactly what to do. That, that's obviously not going to happen all the time, but that should be the goal. And then for, for clarity, once a comment has been addressed and a change has been made and we've all seen it, that comment needs to go away. Mm -hmm. And what I've started doing is buffering my changes with the comments. So I take a screen grab of each comment as I make an iteration and it stands between the previous version and the current version. And so if they make 20 comments, there are 40 images off to the left. There's the image, the comment, the new image, the new comment, the new image, the comment. And in that way, it's time stamped, you know, who asked for what. It's not about gotcha. It's not about, well, you told me to do this, so I get to charge you more money. It's about understanding why changes were made. Often projects, big projects, important projects, projects which have lots of team members on them will evolve and iterate so many times they'll cover the same ground. And being able to go back in time and in, at it instantly, not in time machine, not in Un, you know, unerasing something in Dropbox. That's not what you want. It needs to be right there in front of you. Being able to go back and see those images live with the client on a phone call, they can say, oh yeah, we already tried that. And yep. it doesn't work. And, and that is hugely important. There are times when we do have to charge clients for revisions. I try to never do that, actually. It seems it always comes across as nickeling and diming, and I don't want to do that. So I try to, I think we put it in most of our contracts, they get a couple of revision cycles. But in practice, unless they've changed the scope of the project in some way, we don't usually charge them for it. It shows good faith and it shows it, it seems to indicate bad faith if you if you ding them every time they do it, whether they pay it or complain about it or not, I guarantee you they don't like it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So but the day when you decide, OK, enough is enough. We've got to charge another four hundred dollars for this image. I need to be able to, you know, convincingly unassailably say, this is why we're charging you more money. And right. I can do that on a call by scrolling back and showing them that there are 20 versions of this image. And then we've done that. We've done 20 versions of an image. Some of them are small fixes. Some of them are really extensive, but it's, it's important. So anyhow, that kind of client communication is essential. And the way I tell people the Google Docs work when I give them a high level overview is I say, imagine you were teleported into a room when you were ready to work on an illustration. Everything you needed was in that room. Every comment you would make, every rest, you know, every link to a every URL to the to source matter, 
who's on the project, the file name for the project, the previous versions, that's all in that room. And you can't teleport out with anything. Everything happens there. The reason that's so important is that there are a couple of things that happen. Clients will address between them, between different team members will communicate in that room about the project and they'll come to consensus. And a lot of what would have been revisions that you and I would have to make aren't made because they say they come to a consensus that the way it is is fine. Or they make competing comments and they have to sort through them and decide which one of those wins before we do it. Yep. Right. And if this is all happening, if they all send you emails and those are come to you in parallel, they don't know. Right. And the, the thing that my clients used to do to me, and the reason I came up with the Google Doc process that I have and have implemented for you know 15 years is that when I first started, there was an art director, a project manager, a project lead, a client. You know, there was a medical writer, at least one. So that's five people right there, plus me. They would communicate by emailing PowerPoint documents back and forth. Well, each one of those persons would mark up the document, like 10 illustrations in it. They would send all those documents to me, and I had to sort through them and put them together. And I said, this is, this is a job in and of itself. And mm -hmm. that's where I, that's when I, I, one of the lecture that I gave, I said, your clients will PowerPoint the shit out of you. Yeah. <laughs> that's what they're doing. They'll, you can bleep that out if you need to, but that's what they no, were no. doing. <laughs> you know, they didn't know. They were like, I need this thing changed. Well, you might, the graphic designer might want that changed, but the writer might not want that changed. And the project manager might not, you know, there's, so I, I said, this all has to be in some format where we can all get to it at the same time. The other thing I can do with my clients is I can ambush them. <laughs> And I, I say that, I'm joking, of course. I work with, with a group that does primarily, almost exclusively, internal sales training. They hire a bunch of medical writers, and a different medical writer is assigned to each job. And lots of times, we'll have 20 or 30 illustrations going at a time, and I'm constantly dropping into those Google Docs. And if I have a question for one of the writers, I know them all. They have my, I, I try, you know, I know them very well. If I see that they're actively working in a document, I'll call them. Mm. Yeah, or I'll or I'll leave them a comment on a slide because I can see they're in there working. I try to be very respectful. I don't I don't do it unless I really need to. But you build a lot of goodwill. You have an opportunity when you're working on projects to build goodwill. You deliver something early. You go the extra mile. You know there there are ways you can build goodwill. And then I spend some of that by calling them and saying, Hey, look, I got a quick question. Can you help me with this? And the writer's like, Sure, I'll, I'll you know. I, and I always tell them at the end, I'm like, Thank you so much for taking my call. I don't want to abuse it because I, when I need them, I really need them. And there's this phenomenon, which we all know, but we don't really talk about, which is a five minute phone call is a 20 minute email. If you do it right. Oh yeah. In other words, to, to, to write the email, which you and I can talk through in five minutes, it takes 20 minutes. Cause you have to, it, it has to be well-written. It has to be actionable and it, you have to reread it and ask yourself can someone reading this email know everything they need to know just from the email mm -hmm. are the correct links in the email does it take them to the correct slide if you mention you know is the file name mentioned exactly mm -hmm. if there's a dropbox folder have you included a link to that have you you know have you copied everyone on the email and the project that needs to be copied so on and so forth if you just call them on the phone, you can obviate all that. And yeah. so there are times when the right answer is not to use technology. The right answer is to have a, a conversation. 
for sure. So, yeah, man, I really want to hear a lot about your ZBrush process. I know that's like just a okay. wide chasm of, of information and knowledge. You could go <laughs> off in so many different directions there, but I'll, I'll start off with this, you know, as someone who's been using ZBrush for professional work over like the last decade, you're in a really great position to talk about the changes they've made to the software and the features they've added. You know, what, what are some of the features in that software that are specifically helpful for medical illustration? I think BPR is one, you know, the, the ability to get a very simplified render out of there. And like I said in my le lecture, lots of times I just use screen grabs because mm -hmm. yeah, you make a ZBrush model that it's a small part of an illustration and all the resolution you need is there and just get in there quickly. And uh, let's see, what have they done that I really, really like? Oh, and for the audience, I'll just mention uh, BPR is best preview render. So ZBrush has like a, a built-in render that's totally decent. Like it really gives good results. And you can even add like ambient occlusion and stuff into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's pretty slick and it's super, super fast. Mm -hmm. Nothing to set up. It's just, I have my default setting. I think the things that I really use, the Sculptress Pro mode is pretty good. The Z Modeler brush was a game changer. You know, the ability to bridge. Now when I want to make a muscle that goes from the pelvis you know, to the femur, I find the origin of, of the muscle, I delete those polygons and I tell ZBrush to bridge to a hole on the femur and that muscle is now constructed, right? And I mm. keep, I can keep that same poly group and Z remesh it and it works very well. You know, Z remesher is a big one uh, the, and that has gotten better and better over time. There are some projects where it makes an absolutely perfect mesh for you. Yeah. Instantaneously and with with no it requires no skill on my part. I just hit a button and it pops out, you know, good good topology pops out the other side. Um, I think I mentioned Sculptress Pro. That's pretty useful. If you have a structure and you need a tube to come out of the side of it, you can just pull that tube out and it'll just come out. Um, and mm -hmm. it, it's a way to add. It's a way to adjust the complexity of the model selectively as you work on it. You know, it's a it's an, it's an amazing thing, really. Yeah, yeah Sculptress yeah, used to be a separate app, and then they just built it into ZBrush. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah. And I don't know if it's still a separate app or not. I don't think you can grab it anymore. I think now it's like, okay. there's, like a Z, there's like a diet ZBrush, <laughs> you know, like a light version of ZBrush <laughs> that kind of replaced that, I think. Yeah. Diet ZBrush. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, when I started learning, and I, the, the very first ZBrush that I remember was seeing the angler fish. Do you remember that? This is a long time ago. Yeah. Right when it first came out, ZBrush yeah. 2 or something. Mm -hmm. It was fantastic. And mm -hmm. it was just so cleverly sculpted. And someone did the time lapse. Uh, and I thought to myself, I have got to learn that. Because as an illustrator, someone who's trying to, an illustrator is one of our the things we do is we try to realize form. We try to make mm -hmm. form in some other, you know, we try to reproduce it in some way. And sculpture is a great way to do that. When we first started out, it was kind of before YouTube videos were a thing. I guess they were some out there. There must have been. But none of us used it in that way. So I had to, I read the manual and not, I didn't read it comprehensively. I just kind of picked it up and read what I could. It was years before I could use ZBrush in production. You know, now you can go on YouTube and almost, you, you can almost type in what you want to do in, into YouTube and it will show you a video. Yeah that shows you how to use it, how to do it. Certainly by tool, you can say, how do I use the Ziri Mesher tool? There's a video from Paul Gabriel waiting for you to show you how to do it. And 
it has changed. I said in my lecture, it's such an interesting time to be an illustrator, such an exciting time because you have such great tools to work with. And the training that comes from, from ZBrush specifically, but also from Maxon, from people like Noseman at Maxon, and then from Paul Gabriel, Michael Pavlovich, and from Joseph Drust, he's actually no longer with ZBrush, but their tutorials are fantastic. They're entertaining. They're just wonderful. And there's far more of tutorials than you could ever watch. That's for sure. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So it's a, it's a really interesting time to, to be using ZBrush. Yeah. yeah. Have you used uh, C4D much? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I used yeah. to teach, I taught Cinema 4D. We had to pick a 3D software when I first started teaching there. And, you know, even though I didn't know any 3D at the time, I was assigned to be teaching 3D at the Medical College of Georgia. <laughs> and I was starting when I was teaching because we knew we needed to have 3D and I was the... I was the one chosen to do it. That's where having some actual experience in the field would have been great. My students suffered <laughs> through my first couple. I mean, I, I figured it out and got to where I could teach it decently, but the first couple of years were, were a disaster, I'm sure, for my students. <laughs> no. Well, what are your thoughts on the uh, the purchase of Pixelogic by Maxon? I'm very excited. I hope yeah. that the the great training from ZBrush works backwards and the Maxon uh, Go Z is already working very well. So I can make a model in ZBrush and zap it over to Cinema 4D and back and forth. And there are some, I'm no expert with UVs, but there are some simple UV things that I can do in Cinema that I can't do in ZBrush. Mm -hmm. Or I, maybe you can in ZBrush, but I don't know how to do them in ZBrush. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah. Right on. Here's one thing that I hope they do, which is I hope they figure out a way for us to maintain the scale. So the real world scale in, or whatever whatever default scale ZBrush wants to work in and whatever default scale Cinema wants to work in, they're, they're quite different. Yes, yeah. Well, that's a problem. Yeah. That's a problem for us because if you make something the right size for Cinema, you go to bring it back into ZBrush and you go to make a brush, that brush will be way too big or way too small. Oh yeah. Yep. And especially for us, because we're a lot of times using scan data, which is coming from all these softwares. And a lot of times their scale is set to like millimeters. Right. And then when you come into C4D, the default scale is centimeters or meters, I think. So it's always off by like a factor of 10 or a factor by a hundred. Yeah. yeah. That's a real problem. And I don't ever want to deal with that. I want to know what is the, <laughs> yeah, that, that has definitely tripped me up a couple of times. Oh, yeah. It's like, make it's like forgetting you've you've clicked freeze subdivisions on your model have you ever done this number oh yeah and then you work on your model for a day or two and then you realize oh my god it's yeah. <laughs> did freeze subdivisions what are you and that's it's a bad that's a bad way to be yeah and it, it, it creates a lot of like ocd habits i think in our uh, field you know people are like <laughs> Uber, you know, non-destructive. Like I'm, I'm like over the top non-destructive. Like I've got like Photoshop, you know, folders within folders and the masks are on each one, you know, cause I don't want to like actually mm -hmm. delete anything, you know, things like that. That's kind of like ridiculous. And you're like, wait, why, why did I go to that extent? That's, that's not necessary. Yeah. <laughs> but now be between all the different kinds of projects you've done, I mean, you've clearly, you have a very strong base in, in 2d illustration and you're working in ZBrush quite extensively out of all the things you work with. Uh, what do you consider to be your strongest skill? My ability to draw, yeah. you know, yeah, it's just simple, just drawing. And I, I love it. I love drawing. I'm very glad that I get to use it every day. And I, I, I would encourage people to 
especially when you're doing things like storyboarding, to work on one layer or work on very, very few layers. Don't, don't save all those layers and all those masks. There's, there's something really nice about being able to basically run your thumb across something and, and blur the image, not a layer, but the entire image that is, that is valuable. And you make, you can make decisions that it, it's, it's liberating really. Cause you, you don't have to, you don't have to do a lot of thinking about what's on which layer. And there are tricks for, for doing that, for selecting individual layers on the fly without looking at it. But uh, yeah, it's my ability to draw, I think is what I enjoy the most for sure. Right on. Yeah. And then kind of along those lines, you know, how do you evaluate your own work? Like when you're drawing, how do you know when you, you've finished a drawing? Like, you know, this, uh, this piece is done, you know, it's ready to ship. I don't know. I don't know the answer <laughs> to that. I really don't. And I, 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 what I can tell you is that I work a lot with, you know, with my partners and with my employees and I'll drop in and see what they're working on. And in my opinion, they pass through the optimal, occasionally will pass through the optimal version of an illustration on the way to the final. Mm. It ends mm. up getting too, there's a, you know, too many filters are applied or the saturation's brought up too much or something like that. And I'm not saying that's them. I do it too. And it's very, very hard to know what it is. I will say there is some value in pushing things to failure for your drawing. So in my sketchbooks, a lot of the sketches are, there was a, there was an earlier version of a given sketch that is, that got destroyed as I continued to work on it, but it's not, that doesn't, that doesn't really bother me. First of all, my sketches are not masterpieces. They're not going to end up anywhere. They're just, they're, they're working documents that I learn from as I'm making them. And there are some things that you learn as you push through something, you know, as you destroy it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. When you're kind of like working in, in production uh, and you notice that maybe something's taken a little too long, how do you know when you have to change your approach to, to a problem? So the, the thing I used to tell my students was I'd show them a shortcut and they'd say, how'd you figure that out? And I would say, well, lots of times I didn't figure it out. It was shown to me by one of my students. <laughs> That's what I usually tell them. But in the cases where I did, usually if you think there's a better way to do something, there probably is, you know, like you have a bunch of little, I've got friends that would put things on individual layers and put individual shadows that are on clipping masks to the, those individual layers for like a little sphere or something. And they'd hand paint the shadow. And I said, well, you know, you can just put a layer style on there. Mm -hmm. It'll do the same thing. You know, why, why not, why not do that? And also they don't need to be on different layers. If they're far enough apart, the layer styles won't, won't conflict and you can save some space by putting them on the same layer. And I try to get people to, you know, I, there's one thing we don't do in our field is watch one another work. We don't have a mechanism for that. We don't see, we don't get to see people produce. I would love to sit down and watch Graham Johnson make a molecular illustration. And invariably, when I watch someone, when it, not me, when anyone watches, when a, when a professional illustrator watches another illustrator do something, if they watch them for five minutes, they'll say, why are you doing that? There's a better right. way to do that. Right. And yeah. the more of those conversations you can have with your peers, the more you're going to learn. And I have learned so much by being nosy and working in front of people or saying, Hey, can I, you know, can I just sit down and watch you work? Uh, shortcuts and little tricks to, 
make your, your work life a little easier. There's so much of that stuff out there and we don't have an opportunity to do that. And what I'd really like to do is a, is a live sculpting thing for medical illustrators where we're working, we're making sculpture, you know, we're making the model right there in front of them and have, I think the way to do it is one person would be sculpting and you'd have another person with you that could interpret what you're doing while you do it or could riff on what you're doing and say, well, he's doing it this way, but you could also do it this other way. Someone that could interpret it as you were moving along. And I think that's something I'd like to try to do for an AMI meeting. We could do it live or we could do it and record it and then just play it back, like leave it as a webinar. And then, and then lastly, what you could do is you could, you could probably record yourself doing a sculpture and then play that back. And then you and a moderator could talk about it and about the sculpture process and how it was done and how you might've improved upon it. And I know that from my few interactions with Paul Gabriel, when he watches me do things, God, there's so much that guy knows that he can help me with if he just watches me work, he'll say, oh, you could do this and you could save a morph target for that. You could do this other thing. That's what we really need that our field is lacking. I'd love to see Dave Ellert make a drawing, you know, make a, an illustration. I would learn so much from that. So oh, yeah. I, I hope we can get that going in the future. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I'm, I'm so glad you brought this up. Actually, I can recommend a, a channel. There's a, a YouTube channel called Flipped Normals. Okay. And it's uh, these two guys. I, I think they might be Scottish or Australian. I'm, I'm not quite sure, but they do exactly what you described, where one guy is working on a sculpt and the other guy is sort of commenting and, mm -hmm. and then they kind of have a little back and forth banter. But I would love to see exactly what you're describing. And I think we need it in our field partially for you know, some issues that have that have come up. Uh, one of the things that kind of struck me about seeing a lot of images kind of stolen and reused online and thrown around is people don't always know how much work goes into the work that we do. I mean, there's so much research and mm -hmm. I think there needs to be a mechanism to kind of show and prove that you have the ability mm -hmm. where it's not just that like, oh, I can grab a bunch of images and make, you know, a social media account or whatever and it's all stolen stuff. Instead, why don't I like have live streaming videos where I'm building something like you say, right? So, you know, we could even do something uh, through the AMI, like a draw off, right? Or a sculpt off, you know, like have like a battle, you know, give somebody a topic and then like, you know, surprise them. And then they have to like do it on the spot. I, I like that so much. I think a lot of good things would come out of it. And I think people would find it fun. But what fun would it be to see, to watch Dave Kilpack build a turtle? He'd yeah. be building the turtle and talking about the biology of the turtle while he's doing it. I mean, it would be so interesting. It really would be. Some of that stuff might actually have some interest outside of our organization as well. Maybe that's what you were just getting at. You know, as we transition into more of this digital work, I mean, this is basically the standard for our field now, right? Mm -hmm. Everything's is done digitally. What value do you think still exists for traditional techniques like carbon dust and pen and ink? The, like I said, my, I think my strongest skill is my ability to draw and I can draw with my clients. Th that's what those skills are. It's making decisions about line weight and tone and working on essentially one layer to produce an image, which is what carbon dust is, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't think they have a place in the field, but I do think everyone should know how to draw. I just don't think there's a, there's just not really a place for it. You know, I'm a little dismayed that the graduate programs still teach it. I don't think it's a graduate level exercise. I think the people should know how to do it. I don't think they should be teaching. I think they should collect people who can already do it. 
taking time away from them learning ZBrush and Cinema 4D and animation and business and how to talk to a surgeon to teach them an antiquated process that they're never going to use professionally. I'm sure I'm wrong about that for some of the illustrators, but in my field and the type of work that we do, it doesn't really have a place right now, you know? And also, you know, if you do a, if I do a drawing, very rarely I'll draw something and scan it in. I almost never do that. I find it very difficult to remove the grain and to remove that artistic, you know, that it, some of that ends up as part of the art, which mm -hmm. is great if that's the style you want. A lot of people use that to great effect, but often that's, there will come a day when the client will say, well, get rid of all that sketchiness. Well, now you've got to, you got to redo the image. You got to start over. So I try not to do that. I try to work in, a, in something that's more neutral. And all my work, those, those 3,200 illustrations that we have as a body of work, they all are similarly rendered. They have a similar kind of style. And that allows me to take a piece from here and put it as a piece over here. And often, if I do a new illustration for that client, and there are, let's say there are six things in it, I've already got five of them. I spent all the client's money and all of my time doing the sixth thing that is going to end up in there. And adding that to our image library, or if I have all six, I'll take all the images and bring them up a little bit in their rendering. So that it's a new image and a new assets for us. Right on. In all the exposure you've had with the different clients you're working with, I mean, you're learning so much. We, we all do right about, you know, science, mm -hmm. advances in science. Are there any advances that you're seeing that you think as medical illustrators, we should really be paying attention to? I think that the advances in imaging technology, for one, mm. are just unbelievable. I mean, the optical coherence tomography that for ophthalmology and also other things, you know, it's OCT can be used for a lot of things. It is just jaw dropping when you go and look at some of the images that are coming out of there. You can capture an eye that blinks in 4D. So it's three dimensions over time. It's a four dimensional image, yeah. you know, and the eye is doing this. You can see eyelashes, you know, slapping closed and you can see some dynamics on them as they bend as the eye closes. Oh my gosh. I mean, you can see the, the, the pupillary constrictor and the pupillary light reflex in four dimensions as the pupils constricting and the eye is moving around. It's just unbelievable. That's nuts. To have that, you know, and the thing we don't have, and I'm surprised we've had a, you know, I first presented Osirix at, I don't even remember where it was. It was, maybe it was the Montana meeting. It had to be 15 years ago. There still aren't publicly available, there's not a publicly available set of data sets out there for us to use. You know, I've assembled mostly from friends of mine who have had scans or jobs that I've done. I save the data and anonymize it and keep it. But, you know, there's not publicly available data for us to just go and noodle with. And I don't know why that is, you know, it's like photographs of bones. No one would think that that was patient specific. Of course it is. But there's some magical thing about the digital files where there isn't just a huge library of it out there waiting to be had. And if there is, please email me and tell me where it is. I want to go find it and use it. <laughs> um, I think there's an opportunity there for you know education worldwide. I mean, wouldn't it be great if you could look up green stick fractures of the humerus in children to see what they look like? And you had 400 data sets that had those. You could bring them up as 3D models and look at them and compare them. I mean, the thing you get, the thing that I get from Osirix is an understanding of the human body in three dimensions that you cannot get from a textbook. When Osirix first came out, it was a really funny thing. I was just telling my dad about it the other day. I made a model of a beating heart in Osirix. It was 
it had I'd used to color lookup tables, beautiful image. And you could see things like the the aortic wall, the elasticity of it as mm. it as the as the blood volume pushed through, the bolus pushed through, it expanded quickly, and you could see it shrinking back down and squeezing back down and squeezing blood out through the coronary arteries. Just the coolest image in the world. And I made this model and it's in, you know, it's moving around and the heart's beating. And I showed it to a, a medical illustrator. You know what he told me? Hmm. He said, the heart, he's, and I quote, the heart doesn't do that. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I mean, that logic is airtight. You know, when someone says something like that, it's like, you, you can't argue with it. Oh, okay. I'll throw it away. I guess. And I, I think his point was my understanding of the heart is that the heart doesn't do that. It could very well be that the data set that I had opened was anomalous. You know, it was, a, it was, you know, it's not an average data set. It is one person's data. And so they may have a funny looking heart. They might have some, uh, maybe there's some artifact, maybe it's skewed. Maybe there's some, maybe there was something to it. But from my point of view, I was saying, I am looking at an actual person and data, which I've done my best to make sure is free of alterations. And this is what this guy's heart looks like. I'm not saying it's the only thing you should use, but you certainly should take that into consideration when you're looking at a an illustration from Clementi that was drawn from a dead person, you know? I mean, they tried, they did their best to make it lifelike. Maybe they used a fresh cadaver. Maybe they, you know, there's a number of things you, you can do, but th that is a, was from a dissection. It had to be. And this so Cyrix model is from a living, breathing person. And so there has to be some value in that. And so uh, all this to say, whenever I open an Osiris data set and I'm looking at real data, I get a new appreciation there are some data sets I've looked at for years. I've looked at the same data set for years and years and years. Every time I look at it, I get something else from it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Definitely when using the real source, I mean, you see both the power and the way that that information is captured, but also some of the limitations and drawbacks. And one of the things we've dealt with a lot is how, you know, certain structures, for example, you know, bile ducts, like they're never really mm -hmm. well visualized in the, in those scans. And then you also have, you know, a lot of thick scan data sets. So there's a lot of skipped steps. Yeah. That's just, that's one thing I, I notice a lot is that there is a lot of room for adding in new information. So I've always seen that as a great point of leverage to just kind of argue for the value of what medical illustrators provide, because our ability to go in there, see what we can, what we can get out of that data and then add in the anatomy that we know is it's informed by previous illustrations we've done or looking through a lot of uh, previous work, but then also our conversations with clinicians. Yep. So we're able to add more information to those data sets than what's even present, right? Absolutely. And I think it, just to follow on that a little bit, it's of no value in and of itself because there's such noisy images Mm -hmm. And they're so specific to pe people are so weird looking, you know, everybody's different in such, such incredibly different ways that if you just make a representation of that person, it won't look right. It will look like that person's anatomy, not, it won't look like the average person. And the only way you could make it normative is to know what is, what normative looks like the ways in which, you know, some, some principles and some truths about anatomy or some guidelines about anatomy that we learn through by doing it yeah so it's not it, it's not it doesn't seem when it first came out i think everyone thought oh my god this is going to replace medical illustration and the truth is i almost never use 
OSIRIX data in an illustration? Almost never. And if I do, it's usually about, it's usually something like I'm mocking up how a CT scanner works or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, it works its way into building models. And there are pieces that I make their way into ZBrush models. But in and of itself, OSIRIX is, is not a production tool. It's a research tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, that's a that was a revelation to me because I thought for sure that we were all going to be making, you know, you make using Osiris to make money. I don't think I've ever made a dollar off of Osiris. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I'd see the same thing with, uh, I've seen some really impressive rendering tools that are basically kind of using some of the 3d software, you know, GPU rendering or, you know, mm -hmm. ambient, you know, some of the effects that we're familiar with, like ambient occlusion, specular highlights, they'll add those effects to a volume rendering mm -hmm. from the data set, but that has not replaced us at all. No, you're, you're much more likely to get data and look at it and have an idea for an illustration in ways that I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't, I don't think I could have come up with on my own. And part of that's that you can section things so easily. Also, you can look at the noise and say, oh God, that's gotta be the, du the duodenum. Right. You know, now I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make this illustration this way because I can kind of see what that would be, but it's just, it's just, it just hints at it. You know, the other thing I'll say is that the, we're all, most of the data that we consume is is CT or MR, but man, there's a ton of other data out there that we could just pop right into Osiris. Confocal microscopy data exports mm. DCM fit format, so that could go in there. And then the OCT, and, and you know, OCT, there's a, there's some wonderful OCT rendering of, of finger pads and the little sweat glands. You know, you're I, I never thought about it, oh. but you have sweat glands on your fingers, which help with help you pick stuff up. Well, the sweat glands aren't randomly distributed. They're on the top of each ridge. There's a perfect little hole and they occur at a regular interval along the length of each ridge. And I was looking at this OCT one day, I'm like, God, that is brilliant. It is so interesting. And then I don't know how it does it, but OCT can also pick up shallow depth. And so there's an OCT, I think it's on Wikipedia, it used to be, of a sweat gland. And you can look at it and you can see the sweat gland spiraling around down through the, the stratum corneum. Uh, I guess it's straight through the stratum corneum, but it spirals as it goes through some of the deeper layers. It's just, it's a little 3D model that rotates, a little GIF that rotates and shows it to you. I don't have any OCT data. No, I don't know of any of it that's available, but non-ionizing radiation, it's just, it's just light. It might even be visible light. I don't know, but wow. it's, not, it's, not, it's not dangerous in any way. Yeah. So it's this optical coherence tomography. Is that right? That's it. Yeah. Okay. It's what they use in, it's used predominantly in ophthalmology. That's the big clinical oh, application because okay. they can, they can look at the anterior chamber. They can look at their iridocorneal angle or what, what corneal angle or whatever the thing's called. And they can look at the retina. They can focus it down on the retina and get just magnificent images of the surface of the retina. And then through down through the, the, the layers of the retina to the choroid. And you can see tremendous detail. We did a really interesting project where we made real-time ready models that simulated OCT so they could switch back and forth between what would essentially be fundus photography and the OCT so they could correlate and see what lesions look like on a real retina. That was oh, a fun project. Cool. We did that quite a while ago. Yeah. That's really cool. Wow. Have you ever done anything with uh, photogrammetry or photo scanning? You no, know, I haven't. I probably should have, but I, I've done a little bit of it enough to know the the, the principles, but I've never leveraged it for effect. I just sculpt it. I just find stuff and sculpt it. 
I've been trying to see if I could make something happen there. So I've been playing around with it a little bit at uh, TVA mm-hmm. Surge, but yeah, the potential is there, I think, you know, but the tech yeah. technology has been around for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know Brandon did some really interesting stuff on a heart. I remember what it was for. I remember him presenting it at AMI a couple of years ago, not a couple, several years ago, many years ago. And it was beautifully done, beautifully rendered, really nice stuff. But, you know, normally the stuff that I do is not really supposed to look natural. It's, it's an, it's an illustration of something. It's a, it's a, it's a caricature of, you know, that's what most of my work is. It's supposed to teach people something. And so it's stylized in some ways. It looks like a bone, but it doesn't have every tiny little feature in it. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Are there any other uh, skills or techniques, software that uh, you want to learn more about that, that you haven't explored yet? I, everyone who does what I do is using Substance Painter and Substance Designer and, or whatever it is, and I'm not using it. Gary Welch, who would be a great, he works at Mad Microbe. He'd be a great interview too. That guy's. absolutely incredible and so generous you know his tutorials are excellent he's got a tutorial on how to make ibuprofen as a flexible model have you done that tutorial oh no no i haven't seen this oh it's so clever everything about it it's extremely lightweight uh there's no it's all done with primitives and he's got some really clever tricks for snapping the spheres to the exact position of the ibuprofen molecule And, and when he's done with it you have a fully rigged deformable model and it's just genius. Anyhow, he does a lot with Substance Painter and is constantly sending me things. It's like the uh, the screensaver on ZBrush. You can't mm-hmm. look at that too much because it's bad for morale. Yeah. It's, just, <laughs> it's, just, it's, just, it's like, oh my God, I'll never be able to do that. You yeah. know? Yeah. No, I hear you, man. Well, you know, I, I have to give the AMI credit for helping me to stay current in a lot of new trends yeah. in tech because mm-hmm. I love seeing what other people are putting out and, and discussing and the talks at the meetings every year, are always kind of pushing the envelope of what the newest stuff is mm-hmm. now on the, uh, the hub forum, you know, they've, they've posted some webinars and uh, they have some, some videos they've done there. Tell us a little bit about your activities in the AMI. You've been an AMI member for many years. Mm-hmm. What, what are the, some of the benefits you've gotten? So, you know, it's funny. I was just talking about this with my dad. He had a similar experience with his professional association. And I had no idea when I got into the field how important my professional association would be to me in terms of training, in terms of business. You know, one of our largest clients was referred to us by a medical illustrator. You know, mm-hmm. we have a lot of sister, not sister companies, but friend, companies with, we have friendly relationships with. When they're busy, they send us work. And when we're busy, we send them work. You know, training. Graham Johnson has helped me troubleshoot really complicated problems uh, in the past. He doesn't have to do that. He's busier than I am. And he takes time. He's, he's constantly like, oh, I'm on a plane right now, but I think I've got enough internet to send this to you, you know, and, he'll, <laughs> he'll, and, and on and on and on. I had no idea how much support I would get from my professional association, independent of the, of the friendships. You know, I, I mean, we were, you and I were just hanging out, having a beer at the AMI. And uh, it was so good to see all my friends. I mean, I've been in the I've been in the field for I think he graduated in '99 or 2000. I don't really remember. I think it's uh, I think it was '99. Anyhow, I've been to every AMI meeting. I haven't missed one. And nice. it's it's always so much fun to to go to the meeting and see all my old friends, make new friends, meet new people, go to the lectures. 
training is part of it, but the, it's really the networking so that when I need something, I mean, I've called people for help with contracts and, you know, how to approach business problems. I've done that. I've called people and a lot of them, I don't even know that well. I just call them and say, Hey, you know, <laughs> I talked to you once a year for five minutes. Can you give me any help with, you know, this contract? And people are very, are, are very generous with their time. And that's something I just didn't, I didn't understand how that would function. You know, it, it seems like there would be not enough payoff, but for it to sustain itself, but we all seem to enjoy it. Like I said, I had no idea what, how, how important it would be to me professionally and personally. Certification hasn't really been that terribly important to my career. Like our clients that we work with, they don't, I don't think they really look for that personally. It depends on what industry you're in, but our clients don't really care that much about it. And also I do a ton of stuff that would probably apply for C for CE credits, but I don't, I don't really go through the, pro, the business of, of maintaining my, my CMI. Cause I don't, I just, I can't figure out a way that it really helps me to do that, you know? Mm -hmm. So I've kind of let that, I think I'm going to let that go by the wayside as I move forward. Well, what do you think the AMI can do that they aren't already doing to help medical illustrators? I think that I would love to see the AMI play a more active role in getting people into the association because the people that come into the schools are the people who populate our association. Personally, I'd like to see more science and more technology in the applicants and the people that were applying to the schools. Again, I don't think the, we should be teaching students how to use the basics of using Illustrator. I mean, maybe there are some fancy techniques for, for doing specific things or some advanced seminars that would be worthwhile. But in general, I think people should be responsible for learning software on their own. And we should get students that can do that. You know, we should focus on what we're good at, which is visual storytelling, visual science storytelling. Yeah. I, th I think we will see more variety in people's educational background, you know, coming into the field. We're, we're seeing more people with like engineering backgrounds. I mean, there's always been life science, but I think there's going to be more of that. As people kind of branch off into these different niche areas within our field, what do you think will continue to unite us as a common profession or a common field? Yeah. Good visual storytelling and whatever that's going to be. I mean, I'm surprised how little VR work we've been, when our company is set up beautifully to do VR, there aren't a lot of use cases that come to us where, where we look at it and evaluate it and say, you know what, that would work in VR. And we haven't really seen a ton of that. And that to me is surprising. I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but it's, it's an interesting thing. We did have a project for a legal case. There was a woman who in a surgery on, on her nose, she was having sinus surgery. And her medial rectus muscle of her eye, of one of her eyes, got dinged. And the eye is under tension. That's how macular muscles work. And when you lose tension on one of those muscles, all the other muscles pull it, rotate the eye, and deviate the eye in odd ways. And so her, her eye was laterally deviated. It was rotated along the axis, long axis, and it was, it was tilted down slightly, I think was the way it worked. And we had this in operative notes from the evaluating ophthalmologist. And they said, it's something she can't fix. And she was suing, you know, she was bringing a legal case about it. Well, what we did was we made a virtual reality program, very, very simple of a room, right? Mm -hmm. And the ophthalmologist wrote that her eye was laterally deviated by five degrees. It was external, you know, it was rotated around the long axis by six degrees or whatever. He had it all written down. 
And I think he gave a range and we took the average. But the numbers on paper don't really tell you a whole lot. It doesn't convey anything about what this woman experienced. Well, what we did was we set one of the cameras in a virtual reality headset to mimic her pathology. Mm -hmm. So one of the cameras was rotated, laterally deviated and pointed down. And so you put the headset on and you tap the button on the side of the headset and it would go from normal looking around a room, just a normal room to what this poor woman saw every day of her life. You can't wear it. It's yeah. awful. It is terrible. And we, you went, the, the reaction I had was to pull it off my head when I first tried it because it was yeah. so awful. And we, it was an excellent use case for VR. Other than games, I haven't really seen a lot. And maybe they're out there and I just haven't seen them. I know Oso VR does some incredible stuff, but I haven't really, I haven't been able to put the headset on and try it out. I should, I'd like to do that. And I know they've got some great stuff out there. I think it's interesting to look at what a medical illustrator would have been doing 30 years ago or 40 years ago. They would have learned how to do carbon dust and watercolor and pen and ink, and they would have gotten a job doing that. And there were some outliers, but for the most part, that's what they were doing. And, you know, our, our profession, we went from super talented people right when it first started, when we think it started. And there was a dark period in there where a lot of medical illustrators were just doing charts and graphs. And they were mm. using a Leroy lettering set to draw, to write entire paragraphs onto boards, like large boards, which went to conventions. Man, that is not something I want to do. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of the, you know, I'm not sure that was good for us as a, I mean, it was. It is what it is, right? It was a way to keep people employed and everything else. But I'm glad I'm not having to do that. And I'm very grateful that I get to do the kind of work that I do. I don't think it matters what we do as long as it's good visual science storytelling. I mean, if somebody's building a model of a heart that's big enough for you to walk through, or if they're visualizing blood flow in aortic aneurysms, you know, I don't think it really matters. It's 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 all the same thing. And our, our association has to be broad enough and inclusive enough to keep those people in it. I'm very, very happy to see people like Drew Barry, who seems very interested in us because he does such incredible work. And he just kind of came to our meeting one day and said, hey, I want to be a part of this group. Will you have me? And what an incredible talent that guy is You know, oh, to yeah. see his work and have his work influence what we all do. Uh, and Gail McGill spoke eloquently about that as well. You know, the reason that um, Drew Barry spoke at the meeting this year was my sister was taking a pre a, a, a science class to get into nursing. And she said, you got to see this guy's work. I'm going to send it to you. So she <laughs> sent it to me. I'm like, I know that guy. In fact, <laughs> I know him so well. I'm going to call him and tell him to come to the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I emailed him. I'm like, hey, you should present this year at the meeting. He's, and I, I'm sure he rolled his eyes and thought to himself, I don't have time to do that. <laughs> but he did. And his talk was fantastic. And I love the format that he did where he had a little bit of video and he wrote out what he was going to say, it, probably in a bullet form, as I imagine it. And he recorded himself addressing those bullets, you know, saying, this is, this is why I did this. We made this decision because of this. And then he did a hard cut to the next segment and he, he did the next one. I thought it was, I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I'm glad it wasn't speechified. I'm glad it wasn't. He didn't write out. And then through the magic of Walt Disney, we were able to love him. <laughs> you know, I'm glad he didn't do that. It was very kind of staccato and matter of fact. And it was these great images. This is how we solved the problem. This was the result. 
you know, uh, I, I like that. And he, man, is that guy a, just a phenomenon? Oh, absolutely. What kind of changes do you foresee in the type of work we do in the coming decades? Like, how do you think the, the field's going to change? I don't know. I really don't. I think there will always be a role for doing what we're doing. I do wonder about AI, just the AI stuff I've seen in the last month since the, since the AMI meeting. Yeah. Oh, it's all over the place now, right? Yeah. I mean, concept art has got to be influenced by that tremendously, I would think, going forward. And maybe it could very well put us, you know, is it going to put us out of business? You, no one knows what's what's coming. I can't imagine it would be. I mean, most of what we get paid to do is to solve problems and produce images. And if there's AI that goes into it, I'm sure that's a part of it. But producing the images and, and tailoring them specifically to each client's needs is the job. And the quality of the artwork, everyone thinks that, you know, we're doing super fancy artwork every day. I, I almost never do that. You know, I haven't put a piece in the salon in a long time. I think the last piece I put in the salon might have been the fertility in the fallopian tube poster that I did. Mm. And that wasn't for a client. I just did that. I just dreamed it up and wrote it up and drew it and did it actually in a very short period of time. What I always told my students was, if you're not doing the kind of work you want to do, do a piece and put it in the salon of the kind of work you aspire to do. Mm -hmm. Take it on as a project. Don't expect your client to come to you and say, oh, I want, I want you to make this magnificent thing for me. The clients almost never say that. They got a very specific problem. And, you know, often simple artwork is perfectly fine. Yeah. It doesn't have to be beautiful, at least in the work that I do. And I, in fact, I hardly ever get to do work that I know that's really beautiful, that I consider really beautiful work. Most of it's just solving the problem and getting it done and moving on to the next problem. I do like some of the models I've made. Uh, I, I really like the modeling part of it. ZBrush has great tools. Now you can do a live Boolean. I, I made a thing of a liver and I could use a live Boolean to cut out a section of the liver. I could texture it and paint it exactly like I want. Then I could stick the vessels in there, subtract the vessels from the liver, shrink the vessels slightly so that they're kind of off. So there's a little gap around. I mean, it's the tools that are available now are just amazing. It's just, it's really is a fun time to be an illustrator. Oh, absolutely. A lot of what you're saying, it really resonates, uh, especially with passion projects, you know, kind of doing stuff yeah. on, on your own outside of work hours. And mm -hmm. I, I've been doing that a little bit myself. And, and one of the things I love about it is like, you know, if you decide that you don't like where it's going or you start to get bored with it, you don't owe it to anybody to finish it. You know, you can just drop it whenever you feel yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I do. And similar to that, I have the timeline can be extended. I had a project. I'm like, I want to make the brachial plexus out of rope. Mm. And I'm like, I'm going to do this. And I bought the materials to do it. And I got busy and fast forward. I think it was maybe it was just three years. I think it took three years, but it was a really fun project. And what the first idea I had was to, and I, Dave Kilpack and Russ Adams are the two people that I go to with projects like that. And what they both, and I agree, and I would say it to them if they came to me with a project was you need to iterate very quickly, iterate quickly, fail quickly, move on to the next iteration quickly. And that's what I did. And I had, I started drawing the brachial plexus from memory. That's how I got started. And that was a fun pro uh, project and you, you don't get it perfect. You miss something. The trick to that is you draw it from memory and then you mark up your own drawing with the corrections. You know, you have to check it. If you don't check it, you'll never learn how to do it right. You got to check it immediately. So I started drawing it and then I got the rope. And the first thing I did was braid the rope into the rope. So I used hollow rope tried to use, it's called a FID. A FID is a, a nodding term for 
splicing a rope inside another rope. It's just, just a, like a pen cap it could be used as a fid. So you oh, put wow. the rope inside the pen cap, you push the, the pen cap into the rope, and then you tease the pen cap out, leave the rope in there. If you need to glue it or sew it, you put it in there. And the problem with that was every time you did that, it, it makes the rope thicker and you don't want it thicker. You want it to be the same, right? And so then I'm like, well, that didn't work. So what am I going to do? And I decided I made a template and I got individual strings and I figured out, I said, okay, well, each terminal nerve is at least one string. And so I went from there and I went back to the nerve root that it came from and I traced it across my little platform that I made and I had little twist ties to hold them in place and a drawing of the brachial plexus behind it. And then I realized that some of these nerves come from two different nerve roots and so I was or from you know the two different vertebral levels. So I need two strings there. And I got some I finally figured out the right kind of thread. Well it's it's about the thickness of a of a pencil lead, like an old fashioned wooden pencil lead. Anyhow, I ended up building this whole brachial plexus out of rope. And it is the neatest thing to hold it in your hand because it really looks like the brachial plexus. Once I finally figured out how to do it and I got fabric glue to glue it together, that was part of it. You can't just use regular glue because it's too stiff, it's too hard. So this had to have some flexibility to it. And I guess my point is it was a passion project, didn't go anywhere. I guess I could probably try to get it manufactured somewhere. Oh, and then the other thing I did was I, when I finished it, I realized you need to know what it was. I'm like, well, I'll just write the name on it and you know put it on a little piece of Tyvek and tie it around there. I'm like, well, that's too easy because everyone, you just look at it and you, you know what it is. I'm like, you need something that you can't tell what it is. So what I ended up doing was I made little QR codes, teeny tiny little QR codes. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's, they, they fit, they fit on the end of my uh, pinky nail. They're that small. And my iPhone will read that QR code wow. and tell you what it is. And so there's, you can't look at it and, and remember what it is. And it works like a champ. It works so well. That's amazing. It was really fun little project. That's so cool, man. Completely analog, you know, except for the QR code. Yeah, it was really, really, really fun. And I've got some other iterations of it that I want to do to electrify it. I haven't gotten there yet, but it's a lot of fun to do little stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Have them uh, be able to light up individually. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You could work. You could work forwards or backwards. You could say, okay, C5. C5 nerve root fires, what lights up? Mm, mm. Oh, that you know? And then you could also work yeah. from the other way. You could say, okay, well, the lateral interbrachial cutaneous nerve, you hit that and it traces all the way back to the nerve root. And that'd be fun to do. Oh, that'd be I awesome. pitched that as a, as a thesis project for my students for years and none of them bit. I, was <laughs> I thought we thought that would be a, a great thesis project. Oh, totally. Hell yeah, man. Right on. What do you got cooking right now? Anything you're looking forward to in the next um, couple months? We're pretty busy at the moment. I just got a dog. I don't know what else. Oh, hey, that's big. What uh, what kind of dog? I have a yellow lab and she's sleeping here right now very patiently. <laughs> I'm surprised she hasn't barked. I'm trying to resist getting a second dog. That's what I'm trying to do right now. I'll let you know how that goes. <laughs> do you have any uh, fun facts about uh, science or biology? <laughs> medicine? Yeah, my father's a neurologist. And so no, no kidding. He's, he, yeah, he's he ran the department here in Augusta for years and loved. He was great. He's a great teacher. He's actually still seeing patients. He's 82, but he does wow. residency continuity clinic and sees patients still. And so I, what'd you see today? He's always got some weird things. So I had a guy today who's, he asked the guy, why are you here today? And the man said, when I sweat, I sweat blood. When I spit, I spit blood. Yikes. And he had, yeah, he had, he had a clotting disorder. 
and dad had him spit into a handkerchief and, or a, you know, into a Kleenex. And sure enough, there was blood in it. And so the clotting disorder. So his butt, you know, uh, I can't think of the name of it. Von Willebrand something. I can't remember. Oh, whoa. I love talking about anatomy and stuff with my father. You know, as a neurologist, as an old school neurologist, he knows a tremendous amount of anatomy. And well, so we, we have that in common and we can talk about that and share that. And it's been very nice. Right on. That's awesome. Cool. Well, anything, uh, anything you want to promote or anyone you want to give a shout out to? Any final thoughts? You know, to my partners and business employees, I'm very grateful that we have the company that we have. We do some really interesting work at Isoform. And there's, we never say no to anybody. We do every project that comes across. There's, there's always, there's a kind of can do spirit to the place. Like I said, Russ Adams just got a patent last year and for a, a device which operates a touchscreen in the absence of a person holding it. It's a self-capacitance device, doesn't have any batteries or anything. And we do some 3D printing and we do all kinds of stuff. So I'm, I'm very grateful for our company and the kind of work we do. Uh, I've had some really good collaborators over the years, the, the group at McGraw-Hill that I work with and um, the folks in Grenada who have been so good to me, had me down there so many times. And my colleagues, people like Dave Ellert and David Kilpack, Graham Johnson, Thomas Brown, Annie Goff, you know, these are, they're, they're friends of mine, but they're also colleagues and they've, they've helped me so many times over the years. I'd also like to thank Nick Woolridge for all the help over the years from troubleshooting cinema 4D problems to advice and everything else. I mean, that guy, he's so smart and so able. There's also so many other people, Jody Jenkinson and Corey Sandone, David Reaney, Ian Sook, Christine Young. I mean, there's just tons of people over the years. Bob Morial, I mean, there's so many people to, that I've had interactions with over the years. And I, you know, you interact with them briefly and you're like, God, I am so glad I, I'm in a profession where I can, where I have these people to reach out to, you know, yeah. you know, if I had an institute, if I had an institutional question, I could call Bob Morial. He'd help me. In fact, the very first interaction I had with Bob, I called him out of the blue for some advice about a job. He didn't know me from Adam. I'd never met, never heard his name. And I, I don't, I doubt he'd heard of me. And he was extremely generous with me and gave me some excellent advice, which I'm so glad I took. That's awesome. Man. So, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Awesome. Andrew Swift, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you very much for doing this. It was fun. Thank you very much, Paul. And a big thanks to you as well for listening. As you can tell, Andrew and I were both still feeling the excitement of the annual AMI meeting that happened last month in Des Moines, Iowa. I hope this episode gave you a few incentives to check it out and consider being a member. I'm not officially representing the AMI in any capacity here. I just think it's a great idea to surround yourself with people who are great at something you want to be great at too. Andrew dropped some serious knowledge on this one. So many great tips and references. So please make sure to check out the show notes on my website. Wherever you find the link to this podcast, there should also be a link that takes you to the site. Please let me know if you have any thoughts or suggestions from what we talked about. I'd love to gain further insights from our discussion. This is one of the things I absolutely love about this podcast. It's constantly learning new things from my guests and uh, from the audience as well. So don't be shy with your comments wherever you choose to leave those. And please like and subscribe and share this podcast series with anyone you think could benefit from it. Keep an eye out for future episodes. I've got some great guests lined up for the near future. So until then, stay safe, stay healthy. And if you don't already have one, go start a passion project.